Okay, we're going to get started. I'd like to invite you to come back to your seats. Sorry to break up good conversation. Please continue those afterwards. Just remember who I was talking to, um, and, then, and then go talk to them afterwards, unless you're an introvert. You may have just been doing that because I told you to do it. Um, before we start and jump into the sermon, I do want to address one thing, um, and it uh, feels like we just did this a couple months ago, unfortunately, but um, there were some events that happened this week in Norman, some racist vandalism that took place, and we just want to make sure that we speak up and we condemn um, strongly those actions. And uh, it's hate, it's racist, there's no place for it in the city, and um, we just want to make that known as a church, that we're, we're not going to remain silent on issues like this. And uh, I was thinking this week, as, as the events were unfolding, how, how should we respond? That's At least, how should I respond? That's my first kind of knee-jerk to some of this stuff. And um, obviously, we, we can uh, say that it's, it's a result of, of sinful hum- humanity, all of us in a sinful world. That's true. Um, we can also really get behind the law enforcement to, to find who did it, and we did, and it happened, and the law enforcement did an incredible job, it sounds like, um, quickly um, responding. But the thing I think we may should do first, instead of thinking about those things, is just put ourselves, at least for me, I, I, I tried to put myself in the place of one of those uh, racial groups that was targeted by the vandalism. Like, I, I didn't feel personally attacked or scared by anything that was written personally. It was awful, but I didn't fear to walk around in Norman because of that. But there are people who saw those things and were afraid, were hateful, and they were threatening. And so for a second, I want to stop, and I think we all should do this if we're not in those groups to say, I wonder what it would feel like to feel this kind of hostility, even if it's just a small group of people in the city you live in. What does that feel like when you wake up in the morning? What does that look like when you go, to the, go throughout your day to the grocery store? And I, I, so I think part of the way forward, along with prayer and, and attributing it to sin and preaching the gospel, all those things, but it's just empathy. It's just like stopping saying, what does that feel like when this stuff happens? And then I think that will get us in the right posture if we're not in those groups to actually speak on behalf and speak out against the evil actions. And so that, that's just kind of my, um, kind of as leadership, we wanted to say that, but also my just personal thoughts. Um, I don't want to transition to what we're going to talk about t- this morning. It's going to be out of the uh, book of Luke, um, verse 19. We'll go through verse 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, this is Jesus, entered it. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the ha- half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, is also, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray this morning that we would now place ourselves under your word, that we would allow your word to do its work through the power of the spirit, that it would change our mind and change our heart and change the way we would live as we would leave this place. I pray pray that your spirit would, would just minister to all of us exactly where we need it. And that the gospel and the beauty of your grace and your mercy would be made clear in this passage we're going to look at today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're preparing for Easter in a couple of weeks by doing this little mini-series where we're looking at the instances in the gospels to where the writers say the son of man came. Two weeks ago we looked at the, the phrase the son of man came not to, to, not to be served but to serve. Last week, we looked at the Son of Man came not uh, eating and drinking, looking at who, who we ate and drank with. That was the primary uh, topic we looked at last week. And then this week, we're going to look at the phrase which we saw in that passage we just read, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But to fully understand this phrase, and before we just move over it, we need to understand lostness. Like, what does the Bible mean when it says someone is lost? Uh, being lost, is, it's, it's, it's kind of a hard idea because we just kind of assume that. We know the feeling if we're lost, but it's hard to know that we're actually lost and, being, and need help unless we admit that we're lost. It's similar with, with being sick. It, you, can, you can be sick and not know it and not admit to it. And if you refuse to get medicine or refuse to go to the doctor, you probably aren't going to get healing. So the first step in getting healing for your sickness is to say, hey, I'm sick and I need some help. Maybe some medicine, maybe a doctor's visit. Same with being lost. The first step to being found is actually admitting that we're lost. So we have to come to this place that the scriptures, I think, want us to come to that we can't be saved. We can't be found by God unless we are that we are willing to admit that we are lost apart from him, that we're lost without, some, without him acting. And do we believe here this morning that apart from a saving relationship with Jesus, we are actually lost? It's an important question. And Jesus is going to help us understand what lostness looks like um, by telling a parable. So we're going to jump from Luke 19 over to Luke 15, four, four chapters earlier, Because Jesus gives one of the most famous parables he's going to give. And he's talking solely about lostness. So if you want to follow along, you can go to Luke 15, verse 11. They'll be on the screens. But if you want to follow along, I encourage you to do that. In this parable, Jesus gives us a very clear picture of what lostness is. Now here's some context to this. The beginning of this chapter, in chapter 15... um, the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are grumbling at Jesus. Why are they grumbling? Because he con- is continuing to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And they're just grumbling and they're just mad. And they can't believe someone who would proclaim to be God and be a, a good teacher, all these things, would spend time around these people. And then Jesus proceeds to tell three parables in a row. Two of them are relatively short at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to look at this, only this one today. It's a little bit longer. But Jesus directs these parables. He tells these parables directly uh, to and for the religious leaders. Now, there are other people around listening, the disciples, of course. But 
The reason why he pulls these parables out is precisely to address the grumbling that the religious leaders have. So let's look at Luke 15, verse 11. We're going to stop a couple of times and address some things, but uh, this is uh, the parable. Oh, also, before I get into this, there's three characters to help you think through. There's just the father who represents God. There's two sons, an older and a younger, or older brother and a younger brother. Okay, so three characters. Verse 11. And he said, Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Basically his inheritance. And he divided his property between the two sons. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, the father had given him, and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he's starving. But when he came to his senses, or he woke up, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him. So here's, here's the speech he's practicing. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, here's the speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father cuts him off. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So let's pause here and talk about this. The son asks for his inheritance before the father is dead. Basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. But since you're not dead, can you go ahead and give me that now? If you look at Jewish scholars, there was some belief that the father had every right to execute the son. Like that's how serious and just preposterous this this evil request was by the son. Saying, I don't really care about your money. I don't really care about you. I like your stuff, but I don't like you. I like your blessing, but I don't want any part of you. So can I have my inheritance now? He believes that there's this lasting pleasure and happiness to be found outside of the father's household. He doesn't want to be in the normal rhythms of life that he's been been in with his father and a functioning member of the household. Doesn't want to be under the authority of the father anymore. So he says, I'm gone. I went out. The father gives him the inheritance. The younger son takes the money and spends it on reckless living, the scriptures say. Seems like the economy may have went bad because his famine comes. He's not prepared for it because he has been living just recklessly. And he is taking care of the pigs and starts to look at what they're eating. And it starts to look like steak to him because he is so hungry. Like that slop looks so good. He's starving. And the scriptures say at this point, he comes to himself. He wakes up and remembers his father and he thinks... I remember that our, the, the servants that my father employed, they eat fine. They're taken care of at least. I'll just go back and, 
and maybe be one of them. And so he starts coming up with the most important speech of his life. And when he returns home and he's on this long journey, probably a long way off, the scriptures say that, but also just close enough where the father sees him and recognizes him. Father says, sees him in a different, in, a, in the distance, and he begins running. Begins running. Now, in our culture, it's a little strange for an older man to run unless there's a sport involved. But for sure, in this context, and this kind of Jewish older man, this would have been a no-no. This would have been undignified for a man to run like this. For us, to kind of put it in our context, imagine you're in Target and there's an older man just sprinting through the store. Like, that's not normal. You start thinking, okay, this man's done something wrong and is being chased, or someone has done something to him and he's chasing them. Or he's with his kids and he just passed a toy aisle and he's running away from it. Um, Been there, done that, avoid it. Um, The father runs to him though, just kind of slams into him with a bear hug, kisses him. Again, not normal, not dignified. Like this unconditional love that he is showing to the son is radical. It defies logic based off of what the son did to him, what the son asked for him. Wanted him dead, more or less, took the money, doesn't even take the money and, and, and invest it and double it and bring it back to say, hey, look what I did with the money. Doesn't start a business, doesn't make for himself a life. He just uses and spends the money on whatever pleasure is right in front of him and comes back with his head down. This is the person that the father is showing unconditional love to. And it should, be, it should be mind-blowing to us. How could the father show this son, after what he has done, this much grace and mercy? And then he gives him three gifts. A robe, which was his robe. He takes his robe off and puts it on the son. It's kind of an echo of something else that we know in the scriptures, where we've been clothed with someone else's righteousness. And that's no accident there. He's clothed with the father's robe. He's protected with the father's robe now. A ring, which symbolizes authority. He's brought back into the authority structure of the household. And he's also given sandals. And sandals were something that only members of the household could wear inside. Every other person had to leave their sandals outside the door and walk in without sandals. So all of these things are basically, he's welcoming him. He's reinstating him back into the family and even to a greater status than he had before. This is crazy unconditional sons brought nothing with him but empty hands that he had squandered his living his father's money now for us even if we're followers of jesus in here when we sin our first gut instinct oftentimes i know mine is is to start to pay it back start to work it off god what do i need to do what do i need to what, what do i need to do good here to make up for that bad i just did we start doing penance this is, this is the default mode of the human heart. When we're convicted or we're in trouble, we want to make it right with the person we made it right for. But the father would have none of it. Let's his son get one line into his little speech and cuts him off and starts showering him with gifts and praise and things, symbols that would reinstate him into the family as a loved son. We can only know God through his grace and his mercy. And imagine the son's shame. As he's walking back, that long journey back, the shame he had felt. 
He knew he was wrong. He knew he had done wrong. But the father doesn't add to that shame. The father, in a sense, actually takes that shame upon himself. Because if anybody's looking on to this scene around the father's household, they're thinking, man, father's gotten soft. I'd be beating that boy. I'd be throwing him wherever. I'd put him with our pigs. That boy doesn't deserve any of the father's love. So the father is embracing some cultural shame by showering the son with all these gifts when he doesn't really deserve it. What about punishment? We don't see any punishment here. You gotta think the father thinks that this, this son's had enough punishment. He gets it. I don't need to punish him anymore. He's coming to me with his head down. And if anybody gets punishment, receives punishment, it's the father. He's losing his robe, ring, sandals, a fattened calf. He's already lost half of the money that was still his until he died. The father's been punished greatly for this. Now, he doesn't feel the punishment because he's so glad the son's home. But just looking on on the outside, the, the father has received the punishment, not the son. We human beings aren't naturally good at receiving unmerited grace. This story is probably even hard for us to, to, to hear. Like, the, is that it? Like, the son doesn't have to do anything? The father's going to give him all of this? Yes. Let's remember that there are two sons. There's two sons in the story. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field when all this is going on. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the party going on. The, the music, the dancing the eating of the fattened calf. And he called one of his servants and asked, hey, what do these things mean? What's going on in there? And the servant said, you didn't hear? Your brother has come. He was far off and he's returned. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was very angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, asked him, invited him to come in. But he answered the father, look. It's a way to start it off there. Look, old man. These many years I have served you, yet, uh, and I never, never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, you notice that he's distancing, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. You have access to this. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother didn't witness everything we've just seen. He finds out from the servants after he hears the music. And when he finds out about what the father is, that he becomes angry. He becomes incensed what is going on here. What does he do when, it, when the father entreats him to come in? He doesn't see the, does he see the grace of the father? No. Is he glad and overjoyed because his, his younger brother was lost and has come back? Is he joyful to see it? No. He's angry. First thing he does, is he takes out his resume of righteousness and said, look at all the things I've done for you, father. Look at all this good stuff all, over all of the years. Then he throws in this, never have I disobeyed you. Now, right there, that's a tip. This guy's not perfect. We know that. And so even now he's getting more puffed up and he's getting more delusional in his righteousness. Like, here's my list and I've never disobeyed you. 
This is how he responds to the father asking him to come in. And the father reminds him of the love he has for him. Look around. You have access to all of this. I love you. You're here. He was gone. We have to remember who Jesus is talking to here. Remember, religious leaders. He's talking to the religious leaders. These guys only have one definition of lostness. It's immorality. They set up these rules, taking the Old Testament law, taking it further, set up with, the, set with rules, guidelines. They kept track of it. And if you didn't conform to their rules, you were immoral, and that was the way you got lost. If you were immoral, not following the law, not being a good person according to their definition. And Jesus tells this parable to wake them up, to show them there are actually two ways to be lost. You could be immoral and be lost, and you could be moral and be lost. There's only one way to be found. And it's not just by being moral. It's the message he's trying to communicate to the religious leaders. There's two ways that we're alienated from God. There's only one way home. And I do think Jesus is giving us a paradigm here in Luke 15 for how we view lostness and our alienation from God. And he uses these two sons to teach us, these two kind of categories of people. So for the rest of our time, I want to dig in to these two ways of approaching God, these two ways of being lost of God, and and look closer at it, because we all will fall into, I think, one of these categories. We'll go back and forth, I think, throughout our lives in different seasons, but in my experience, as I've walked through this paradigm with people, that most people lean towards one way or the other. You either lean towards being more of a younger brother, or you lean towards being more of an older brother. And if you still need some, like, some help on just like the, the, the two categories here uh, for, you, for you office lovers, you have younger brother, Mer- younger brother Meredith, older brother um, um, Angela, sorry, um, friends, people. You have younger brother Joey, older brother Ross. Okay, for you, this is us people. You have younger brother Kevin, um, older brother Randall. Okay, so if that helps you. And this passage is not talking about birth order. It's not talking about personality and birth order. It's talking about spiritually and how we relate to God. So let's look at the younger brother. These types are nonconformists, rule breakers, immoralists. Their sin is going to be more visible because they don't really care. Um, They use people in their sin rather than condemn people in their sin. Even though they are not enslaved to rules, they're not free. They're enslaved to whatever the culture is dangling in front of them at the time that promises lasting pleasure. They chase pleasures here and there that won't satisfy. And for the younger brother, I think the, 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 the truth here is that sin is deceiving. It promises freedom, but only brings slavery. The younger brother is not free. He's not free in this story when he took the father's money. He was enslaved to his pleasures then. And for sure, when he's with the pigs, he is enslaved to his sin. And he is alienated from God. So for the younger brother, submitting to Jesus's benevolent kingship is going to be really difficult. And maybe a lifelong battle to to see Jesus as king and submit to that king. You may hear younger brothers say or, or say out loud or think this, that you can't control me, God. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do with my sexuality. You can't tell me what, you have no authority over my body. 
You have no authority on how I spend my money. You have no, you have no authority to tell me to deny myself and die to myself because I need to live for myself because I need the approval of whatever people over here I'm trying to get the approval of. So don't tell me to deny myself. I'm going to live so I can get this pleasure and get this approval from people. So like, we don't want to just skip over the younger brother here thinking, oh, this is about drunkenness and prostitutes and kind of the classic sin pattern. It could be that. But ultimately, foundationally, this is about lordship. This is about who is king in your life. And the younger brother wrestles with this. Wrestles with this. Are you going to be formed by the spirit and the word? Or are you going to be formed by something else in the culture? Is God your ultimate king and authority? Or are you your ultimate king and final authority? These are questions for younger brothers. And I'm sure questions the younger brother was thinking through the whole time he was coming back to God. Now let's look at the senior, old senior over here. What a bundle of joy this guy is. Okay. Older sons, which I am a car carrying member of most times, um, are conformists. We're rule followers. We're moralists, at least according to the code we lay down that we want to play by. Our sin or their sin is usually more hidden. I like people to think I have it all together, so I'm going to hide my sin more than maybe a younger brother would, me personally. We condemn people rather than use people. We want to condemn people to lift ourselves up rather than use people like the younger brothers may. Uh, We're enslaved or they're enslaved to their own rules and righteousness. See, the older brother in this story, he needed the father's approval to feel accepted. He had his checklist of morality. He needed a father to come along and check those boxes and say, good job, boy, good job, boy, good job, boy. And then he would have had everything he needed. He used the father to prop up his view of self-righteousness. He was obeying in order to be accepted by the father. He was relying on his performance to be loved by the father. And what this usually leads to is prideful, being prideful, having a lack of joy and really having it being having the inability to love people because we're always looking at our own self-righteousness as older brothers now he couldn't possibly have believed the older brother that how could this father have grace and mercy for someone as bad as my younger brother like how could he do that how could he do such a thing and we see this in the old testament Recognize the story of Jonah. Jonah knew that God would forgive, had the grace and mercy forgive the Ninevites. Jonah hated the Ninevites. Jonah said, I ain't preaching the Ninevites. I'm not gonna be a part of this plan. I'm heading the other direction. God said, no, you're not. You're gonna go preach to the Ninevites. So we see Jonah wrestling with this, probably an older brother type as a prophet in the Old Testament. And you notice throughout the story, the older brother is around the house. For years, he's around the house doing his thing, doing his duty. But at the end, he's not in the party. He's not in the party. And this should, this should scare people who are older brothers. We could be around the church for many, many years, believe the right things, fall in line, conform, but never actually have a relationship with God based off of grace and mercy. It's scary. The older brother needs not just an attitude adjustment, he needs a new heart. 
He needs to be completely transformed from the inside out. Tim Keller, in his book, Prodigal God, which, by the way, I think is the best book on this chapter. I've learned so much from it over the years. He has a quote talking to, young, to older brothers saying, The main thing separating you and God is not your sin, but your damnable good works. Like you're so worried about being good that you can't receive the grace and mercy of God, which is the requirement to be saved. In other words, they don't understand their lostness. At one point of the story, both sons are lost before the, uh, the, the younger son comes home. They're both lost, but at the end of the story, only one is reconciled to God, or to the father who is representing God. And it's the younger one, because there's been repentance. And he's telling this story to the religious leaders to show them, you need to repent of being so awesome, so good. You need to repent of that, or you're not going to be in the party. Yeah, the younger brother was bad, but he repented. And now he's in the party. He's better than he was even before he left. So Jesus is saying that both kinds of people are in trouble. There's only one way back to God, and that's through repentance and believing the grace and mercy that God offers found in the gospel. And it should, it should scare us to how this story ends. He doesn't realize he's lost because he thinks he's such a good person. So here's, here's the danger talking to older brothers, because this is more subtle. This is why I'm spending more time on it. Norman, Oklahoma, there's a lot of older brothers around, I think, because it's still good to call yourself a Christian around here. Not a lot of persecution, good for your cultural resume if you can put what church you attend down on there. But my worry is, is that some, maybe many people in this city are at one point in their life, walked an aisle, went down front, prayed a prayer, raised their hand, said yes to something, but it wasn't the gospel. It was a set of rules or guidelines or way of Christ to behave as a Christian that the big group around you was kind of saying, this is the way. And you said yes, but you weren't saying yes to the mercy and grace of God, maybe. Maybe you were saying yes to a, a system of behavior and living that you thought may save you. This is older brother stuff. And this, the why that doesn't save you is because it's not humbling yourself and admitting that you need a savior. It's like saying, God, just give me the rules, give me the guidelines, and then I'm going to go follow them and be a good person. God is not your savior in that reference there. He's just a guy who dispenses some rules that in your power you're going to fall. You're lifting up your self-sufficiency to say, I got this. I can be a good person. I don't need the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't need the grace and mercy of God. I've got this. I'm just going to be a good person. That is not honoring to God. That brings no glory to God. It only brings glory to ourselves when we when we're, happen to be in a season where we're being really good. What does bring glory and honor to God? When we wake up humble ourselves, realize we're lost and incapable of doing anything that will get us back in the good graces of God and absolutely throw ourselves on his grace and his mercy and say, I have nothing. I have nothing to bring to the table. I am just trusting that your grace and your mercy and the life, death and resurrection of Jesus will allow me to be saved and welcomed back in the home. Be humble ourselves and do that. And this brings honor and glory to God because God can stand up there and say, 
absolutely. Welcome back. Let me shower you with gifts. Let me shower you with praise. Robes, sandals, rings, fattened calf, party. God gives us all of those things, and he looks like a really benevolent, awesome, and good God, which he is. That brings glory and honor to God. Not being a good person with no power coming for God and trying to work our way back into the Father's house. Because like the older brother, it will not work. The world views people as two kinds, good and bad. Hopefully we've seen that the scriptures have three groups of people. Bad people who don't realize they're bad, who think they're good, like the older brother. Bad people who are are bad and they don't really care about being good. That's the younger brother before he woke up. Then you have bad people who actually realize they're bad and they need a savior. They need something outside of themselves to come in and save them and make them good through the righteousness of Jesus, not by their own good works. And, And the third is what makes you a follower of Jesus in that category. That is how the Bible views people. So if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, the good news is you have been welcomed back into his family and you have an older brother. And his name is Jesus. And he is a perfect older brother. He did all the things an older brother should in this situation rather than what the older brother in the story did. The father in the story says, "Uh, older son, everything I have is yours. It's all yours. That's a parable. Literally everything God has is Jesus's. It is. He's equal in glory to the Father. And then he comes down to earth, sets aside that glory, humbles himself, empties himself, Philippians tells us, and died a horrible death on the cross for sinners like you and me. He lost it all so that we might be found. He comes and gets us in the pigsty, puts us on his back, carries us back to God. He gives us his robe of righteousness, gives us the the ring of authority through the Holy Spirit we now have in our lives. He gives us sandals to allow us to come back into the Father's house, making us sons and daughters and not an orphan any longer. This is the good news. This is what Jesus does for us, for sinful human beings. And this changes. This is why this is the gospel message. This is all the gospel. And this is what changes how we behave. It changes how we treat one another now. It changes how we do mission, how we love the city. It changes how we read our Bible. It changes how we pray. It changes how we handle our money, our gifts, our time, all of our relationships, our families. This news changes everything, which is why it's so beautiful. And we want to talk about it over and over and over. Imagine now if the story continued on the younger brother, younger son, and the father asks him to do something. You think this younger son's going to have a problem honoring his father with his life? I don't think so. The love of the father is going to compel him to live a life that honors him. He's not going to be doing it like the older brother out of approval. He's already approved of. He's got the robe. He's got the ring. He's got the shoes. Daddy, you tell me what you want me to do. I am all yours. You're my king. You're my dad. I want to honor you because I know you're good because of who I was and what the grace and mercy that you showed me. Um, John Newton, the the writer of Amazing Grace, um, says this in another poem he wrote. He said, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. So before, being dutiful to God wasn't pleasurable because we're the older brother. 
But if we've humbled ourselves, received his grace and mercy, now the duty of obeying God is pleasurable. We enjoy serving God. The hard things that the scripture tells us to do, we enjoy doing those things because of the Father's love that he first showed us and the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives us that enables us to do those good things he's called us to do. The younger son wants to honor God now. So we can now have the freedom to do hard, the hard things that the scripture tells us to do. And there's some hard things in there. Here's what I want us to remember. I pray that we remember that we were lost. All of us were lost. Maybe some of us are still lost. If we have faith in Jesus and we humble ourselves and admit that we need a savior, we can be found by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I love your gospel. And I just think about the, the look on the father's face as he's sprinting down the dusty road, coming to the son who's done some really, really bad things. So oftentimes, I, when I look at the father's face, I don't, I don't see that. I see maybe a, a, a coach or um, even, a, even a teacher, somebody who, who's grading me and who's, who's, um, who's telling me, the, 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 yeah, I did a good job, but yeah, but you could, you could work on it here. That, that No, that God is our father. He sprints to us. He loves us. He lavishes us with good gifts because he's good and he's merciful and he's gracious. And so as we move into a time of communion, I pray as we, as we um, participate in this that we would, we would see that, that your glory and your beauty and the gospel would be magnified to us over the next few minutes as we close the service. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.